You can buy in the perfect suburb, but if you buy the wrong property, even in the right suburb, that property is not going to perform, right? If you're purchasing and you're putting in a 20% deposit into a property and you're mortgaged up to your hairline to be able to hold this, I don't think it's a great idea to do it. Your ability to then create a portfolio outside of that is hampered because your serviceability is hampered. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. I'm your host, Cheryl Leong, and with me, my very gallant host, Motsun Reza. Drum roll for the man himself. How are you doing, Moss? I am amazing. I am awesome. How are you, Cheryl? Always, always, always good when we're talking about property and especially when we're talking about really fancy blue chip properties. Our topic today, and this is part of our news segment of myth or bust, it's like where the myth bust is. The the questions that we get asked time and time again are topics that come up time and time again. You know, should I buy premium blue chip property? Is that the best way to go? Definitely. And naturally... There is this notion around expensive or negatively geared properties are the only way to create wealth. I heard this on one of the podcasts or I think one of the reels where the person was saying that, you know, high rise Harry, who is the Australian's richest billionaire in real estate developer, you know, you don't see him buying, you know, properties in cheap regional towns to create wealth and he's buying it in core Sydney and Northern Shores and that's how he's creating the wealth. And so why are you going there and buying in regional towns? So you are going buying their affordable houses, you know, sub $400,000 or $600,000 properties. So it, it's, it's an important argument to play, right? And so that's what we are going to do today. We are going to play that argument of the pros and cons of buying in blue chip areas and, or should we be investing in blue chip areas at all, like typically. That's such an interesting argument because I guess the you know, the the person that's made that comment is only seeing, let's say it's Harry Triggerboff's portfolio in a tiny little segment when Harry's got a whole lot of built to rent as well. You can see it's part of the, a, a, a larger portfolio strategy. Yes, you've got high capital, high capital, you know, capital growth and equity and value. But yet you've got another part of his portfolio that is incredibly um, high-yielding, cash-rich, right? So you can see where it's possibly balancing out his portfolio as well. So, yeah. And it's a typical high-net-worth example, right? I think, you know, my comment to my own self when I was listening to that was, well, Harry was never always a high-rise developer, right? And so what about that Harry who was 20-year-old and... How about you go and check that Harry out and see what he was doing when he was 20 years old, right? Don't look at Harry who is 60 years old and a billionaire uh, and buying in, you know, Sydney or Melbourne or rich areas. You, know, you need to see where he started. He was, sort of reno- if I'm not wrong, he was renovating sort of blocks of old, old, apart- old apartments, right? And that's where you've got to start off. You don't start off, wake up one day and you're building, you know, 50 level uh, apartment blocks, you don't do that. You've, you've got to build up from there. So Definitely. 
Definitely. So for the user's sake, let's talk about or let's define what is a blue chip expensive property. You know, um, let's let's try understanding the definition of a blue chip property because, you know, no, not a lot of people understand that. From my perspective, when you talk about blue chip expensive properties, these are properties within major city center radius, like 10, 15 kilometer radius or one of the most wealthiest pockets of major city centers, you know, be it Melbourne, Sydney or anywhere else, you know, be it Byron Bay, right? Could be anywhere. But typically you are looking at properties which are significantly higher prices and the yields on these properties are significantly lower, you know, sub 300 or 3%, I would say below 3%, not even sub 3% in, in majority of these cases. And, and that is the definition of expensive blue chip property that we are talking about in today's conversation. Yeah. And typically they've got a really high percentage of owner occupiers as well, right? So in terms of the, su- the supply in those areas tend to be quite, quite tight, but the demand is also very, very strong because of the convenience and everything else. Yes. And I, I think that's a good segue in talking about the pros of buying into these properties, right? You talk about a high-end market, which is like 5, 10, or even 15 million market, right? You know, these markets don't see typical property cycles, right? Because you're not talking about an average Joe Bloke Australian, you know, who is, you know, scared of, you know, a 1% interest rate, price, right? Interest rate rise, yes, yes. You know, so these markets don't move because of interest rate rises. You know, yes, the market might stabilize, but you don't see negative growth in a lot of these areas or you see negligible, you know, a negative growth in a lot of these areas. They're very stable, long-term mature markets. So that's definitely a pro in investing in these areas. It's almost like it's a safe bet, right? You buy in this area and it's a safe bet. You know you can never go wrong, you know, in buying this area because they're tightly controlled, they're owner-occupied, the demand is there, the schools are great. You know, people would always be wanting to live in there. You know, these are like Turex and the Brightons of, you know, Melbourne or Sandringham of the Melbourne, or you talk about the North Shores of Sydney. You know, it's it's those premium pockets which are never going to change. It's or the gentrification is already high up there and not going to go backwards, right? You know, it's not that all of a sudden people start becoming poor in these areas. <laughs> even in a G- even in a GFC, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 In fact, you know, in DFC, because they are high steward investors themselves, they actually be a lot more aggressive and they upgrade their homes because they know that no one is buying, right? And so they try to find these, you know, what I call these is, you know, these ugly ducklings where this wrong person has entered the suburb and they're trying to pretend rich and now they're feeling the wrath of being in that suburb and they're trying to, you know, cash out and these people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to buy you out. It's not a problem. You know, so <laughs> basically, you you see those stories. Forty million dollars. Uh, I'll tell I'll tell a really short story. A friend of mine from overseas, and he's like, "Oh, I've got a I've got a investor that's looking to buy a property in Australia," and I and I joked. I said, "I you know I hope he's got deep pockets," and he goes, "Yeah, he was looking to buy a forty five million dollar house in Singapore." I'm pretty, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's. The money's not that issue. I went, okay. So it's like those sorts of buyers that you're generally dealing with, with the really high-end prestige blue chip blue chip properties. But what we're also seeing there in, in those areas is we talk about sort of a more stable level of, of growth. 
what we also see that if you're buying in a brood ship area, and I'm talking about an area as opposed to the property itself, you're buying, uh, as they often say, the worst house in the best street, right? There's always this potential for an incredible amount of manufactured growth in that area as well. Because you have a property down the road that's sold for $5 million. You've got a crappy old house that's maybe $2 million. Still a good lot of money. But, you know, there's a $3 million difference there. You could knock down, rebuild, and you've got a $5 million house. Typically, you think about why development works in these areas is because of the guaranteed growth. You know, these price discrepancies of an old house versus a schmick looking, nicer looking house, right? And you were joking about this, you know, rich people pay for convenience, right? And this is the premium example of convenience. You know, they don't want to buy an old house, spend 700,000, wait for a year, go through the hassle of, you know, fighting with the builder, you know, because they're overcharging. Not like us, plebs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, they don't they don't want that hassle. They want to basically, you know, bring in their Chanel bags and just walk into the house and say, okay, you know, this is one bag for you for $15 million and shush away and we are going to move it, right? Basically, that's the mentality of these people, right? And I'm throwing that picture out there for people so that, you know, people can understand that this is the area that It's a bit of a generalization, but, you know, we're, we're invoking the... Okay, maybe not maybe not Chanel bag, maybe a Tommy Hilfiger bag. You know, let's you know. Oh no, no, no! That's 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 not that's not. Either way, we're we're, we're painting a very generalized picture of the image of of you know the the fact is that we the there's not as much of that that mortgage stress that we're talking about because generally at that at that level LVRs are really quite low. Potentially as well, there's a lot of old money. In these areas, so you've got properties where the older pro- older properties, incredibly you know expensive properties that have probably you know were purchased for fifty thousand dollars like fifty years ago, three four four million dollars. So you can see there where there's incredible amount of wealth in the property in the property itself, but you'll find that there the people that are there will often be quite asset rich. If you're talking about old money, asset rich, but cash, but cash poor. So, the pros of p- purchasing in in these areas is that, you know, one you've got we mentioned, you know, potentially being able to manufacture growth a lot easier because there's often a big discrepancy between the crappy old house and a renovated renovated house. So, big pro there. And some other things in terms of, you know, if you, because they are in nicer locations and everything else, well, you tend to think there is a higher demand for that type of property. However, when you get to a point when we'll talk about the cons, yes, you have a, you've got a better product, but then on the flip side, if it's too unique, then you potentially are narrowing, you're narrowing your market as well. Any any other pros that you can think of before we move on to the the not so pro bits? I think the last one is more in relation to the safe, stable, predictable rental markets. And so, you know, you would always find it easier for tenancies to go through. You know, they are really low on vacancy rates because they are super gentrified, you know, high wealthy areas. And you would get tenants quite easily in some of these pockets anyway. And so while the rents are low, 
the vacancy rates are quite significantly lower as well. And so you don't see a massive turnover of tenants typically in some of these areas. And so, yeah, uh, and I, I think that's a good segue into talking about the cons as well, right? So because the rents are low, while they're consistent, they're really, really low, which means that these properties are significantly un, like negatively geared, right? And just to preface it, when we say low compared relatively to the value of the properties. Yes. So, for example, we went to see this incredible property, Oceanfront property, which was a good $6 million or whatever. I think it might have been a bit more than that. Ocean views and all, it was renting for $2,000 a week. You think about that and you sort of go, what are my numbers? Like, like, it's almost like a no-brainer. But they had to because... At that level of property, there's such a smaller number of people that are willing to rent at a really high level, right? In which case means that the market needs to come back. And so you find actually there's more discounting to a certain extent to make it more affordable for people who can rent those properties. But you're right, they're they're significantly negative geared. And so the argument around buy where you want to invest and live and, and rent where you want to live in those situations really makes really makes sense because if you're li- you're living and renting a six seven million dollar house for two thousand dollars, I mean people who are paying eight thousand dollars in in mortgage at the moment, I think that's probably like a house that's one point five million. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And it's a, it's a tick on both sides, right? You're creating a lifestyle for yourself and, you know, you're creating wealth for yourself on the side as well. You know, that's why rent vesting is becoming quite sort of popular these days as well, right? But coming back to the negatively gearing side of things, just to provide people a bit of example in relation to some of these things that negatively geared is what, you know, a lot of property advisors or buyers agents would push it out there that, oh, they're negatively geared, but there is consistent growth. Understand that these properties could cost somewhere around like $70,000 per year in holding cost in today's rate, right? And if even like 50% of this is offset by rent, you know, you're still talking about $35,000 worth of expenses of holding this property, okay? Now, the important thing about these properties is or in these pockets is that you buy, say, $3 million or $4 million property, it's not going to become a $6 million property in seven years' time. There is mature growth which means they, they grow by like 4%, 5% every year. Yes, there is predictable and guaranteed growth almost, but it's not magnanimous growth. It's not, you know, with a higher magnitude growth, which basically means that if your holding cost is, say, $35,000 a year in out-of-pocket before taxes, say, for example, if you're holding this for 10 years and, uh, you know, this property goes to, say, you know, an extra, you know, $900,000 in increase in value, for example, you have basically paid close to about $400,000 in holding cost, right? And so you need to understand that, you know, while your property value has gone up by 900, you know, your net impact is still like 400 over 10 years, right? Because you are so significantly negatively geared. A lot of people don't think about these things. You know, they don't think about this leakage of money that is happening on a year-on-year basis. They completely forget about it. They say, oh, I bought a property for a million. I'm selling it for one and a half. So I've made half a million dollars. And be like, no, no, no. That's not the true comparison. What was the out-of-pocket that you paid in holding this property? And you need to add that when you're taking out your profit or your walkaway in relation to some of these properties. 
And that's where the deal breaker happens, right? You know, people who are on higher tax brackets who are earning like $300,000 a year, cash flow is usually not a problem. And so they got, get sucked into these properties because they're like, oh, it's only $35,000 a year. I can hold this. But what they don't realize is that in the long term, the opportunity cost of them not getting the return or, you know, that that magnanimous growth is something that would basically take them backwards in creating the wealth for themselves. Yeah. So who's paying $35,000 a year in interest in these places? Oh, crazy. There is a lot of people. Like, like I, I know one of my clients, and I kid you not, he's out of pocket right now. He has two properties, both of them significantly negatively. Yet he bought these properties when, you know, the rates were at 2%. You know, these properties were sitting at 3% yield. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, and these are not even like four or five million dollar properties. I'm talking about one, one and a half million dollar properties, by the way. Two of the properties, you do the maths, he's paying roughly about $70,000 out of pocket every year from his disposable income. You're, talk- you're talking about uh, expenses, like overall expenses in- and net. Yeah, net. Yeah, going out of your pocket. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so it's really painful. And, it, you know, at the start, it wasn't that bad, right? Because in 2% interest rate, 3% yield, it's almost negatively geared or neutrally geared, right? The rate starts rising. And then all of a sudden, you can see the wife getting frownier and frownier every day as to what decision have you made here. <laughs> frownier. That's not, don't look it up. I, I really don't think that's Sure, that that's not the word. Yeah. <laughs> Frownia, not a word. There, there. I say they're not. They're not particularly impressed with the financial situation of that property. What else, Cheryl? If you talk about the concept of you know buying these negatively geared properties, well, I think we touched a little bit on, on in terms of the higher entry cost to actually buy in. You see, you know, the stamp duty to to, to buy into a multi million dollar property is a few hundred thousand dollars on its own. So there, you know, you need to make sure that if you're going to purchase in these in these areas, first that it's sort of investment grade, that long term, that that you're not you're not purchasing in an area that's a dud, even though you're in a particular suburb, that the property itself needs to be in a good in a good spot. A very important point. Yes, yeah, you can buy in the perfect suburb, but if you buy the wrong property, even in the right suburb, that property is not going to perform, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And I think the thing that a lot of people might purchase into, and I, I, I believe this is relevant for, for anywhere really, is that, you know, if you're purchasing and you're, you're putting in a 20% de- deposit into a, a, a property like this, and you're mortgaged up to your, honestly, up to your, your hairline, right? And you're having to sacrifice your lifestyle to be able to hold this. I don't think it's a great idea to do it because it actually then means that your ability to then create a portfolio outside of that is hampered because your serviceability is hampered. And you're waiting for capital growth to be able to get there, which capital growth might happen. But the fact is that because you're maxed to uh, max to the max, your serviceability is not there to be even able to to take advantage of that capital growth. 
and and this mindset, this is a very old school mentality, right? Where I'm going to kill myself today in order to hold a property portfolio that is significantly negatively geared till I hit 60 or 70 and I retire and I'll sell one of these to basically make a living for myself. You know, even if, you know, a $2 million property becomes $4 million by the time you retire, say 50 or 50 or 60, you know, $2 million by the time you hit 60 is not worth that $2 million. Like, you know, it's not enough to provide for that retirement, right? I was giving that example to a client that, you know, imagine that you're 60 and you're trying to retire and, you know, you have a net worth of a million dollars extra, you know, and you live till 95, you know, you have an extra, what, 30 years of 35 years to live. And, you know, that million dollars is like $30,000 a year, like literally, right? You can't live with that sort of money. So it's important that the scalability and sustainability become significantly hampered because typically what you're doing is you're putting all your eggs in one basket, right? And so the benefit of diversification is what you're not going through. And I always use this example for people that, you know, if you are in this, like everyone is in the property game from a long-term perspective, that's true. There is nothing wrong with that. But then why blue chip suburbs? Just buy graves, right? We use this example numerous number of times that, you know, graves go up in value significantly more than a blue chip property because, hey, the demand is never stopping. Hey, and the supply is significantly crunched. So, you know, that mentality needs to change. Your tenants don't make any noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. I love it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My mum joke for the day. I'm very proud. So, yes. And I think one point that you originally made, which is a very strong con for a blue chip property, is that you have a really small portion of buyers and sellers. And in a crunched market, you know, that portion of buyers and sellers can be really, really picky, right? And so they might not like the color of your facade of the house, or they might not like the tile in the bathroom. And so, and they would discount that quite significantly on the price point, because as Shell said at the start, that the, the discrepancy between an old ugly house and a brand new house is massive. And so if someone sees your house as an old ugly house, no matter how nice your house is, because they perceive that value as a lower amount, basically that's the, it, right? Because you have such a small pool of buyers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Moss, you, you didn't do the the honours of doing a bit of a wrap-up. Whether Does it mean that we shouldn't buy buy blue-chip properties or, or at all, or is there a better alternative, or what's, what's option C? Look, uh, Typically, we are not saying that you shouldn't buy blue chip properties, right? You know, there is a place and a space in your property portfolio of buying, you know, these properties. You know, I always say to people that, you know, you don't just focus on positive cash flow property and stay away from negatively get property because then you would never invest in Melbourne and Sydney at all because everything that you touch in today's time in Melbourne typically is negatively geared or Sydney today is negatively geared, right? The idea is that your overall property portfolio needs to be sustainable. And so you need to generate enough income within your property portfolio that these negatively geared properties are catered for as part of your overall property strategy, right? And that's the most important thing that, you know, yes, they are safe bets. And so why wouldn't you want them in your property portfolio? You know, especially if you have multiple exit strategy or development potential in these properties, they are perfect. They have a perfect place in your property portfolio that you can develop them in the future, you can do a lot more with these properties, but it's important to, to create that sustainability around these property properties 
to make sure that there is enough buffers in place to protect your lifestyle, right? The other important thing to understand is that you don't start off your property portfolio with a blue chip property. I think that's the rule of thumb, right? You don't start off with a negatively geared property because then, as you mentioned, you're going to crunch your serviceability completely in order to scale up your property portfolio and you're going to lose that lifestyle as well. The idea is to start off in areas where which are going through gentrification, which are going through infrastructure changes, which are going through a lot of these you know, population growth. And they're still owner-occupied areas. You know, there is this stereotype that uh, owner-occupied areas are only in rich suburbs. That's not true. Like there are areas which are going through gentrification, going through massive mortgage affordability changes, and people are, you know, reaching higher echelons of income levels. And they're still very owner-occupied, owner-controlled areas. And so if you buy there at sub-600 price, but focusing on higher yields as a first-time investor, then as part of your experience investing strategy, you can add blue chip properties with development potential, blue chip properties with multiple exit strategy into your property portfolio and makes it a lot easier for you to hold and enter into some of these more pricier premium markets. And you can be the next Harry um, high rise, right? Yeah, Harry or Moxon or whichever you like. They said, yeah, again, I think we've, we've, we've talked about this as a quick summary in terms of you know, it needs to be part of an overall investment strategy. Probably not a great idea to have one blue chip property and that's it and <laughs> and not much else because that's not a very diversified portfolio. If you've got a diversified portfolio, you've got cleaning properties and two of them are blue chip, the rest are all different types of assets and so on and so forth, then, you know, throw a few, throw a few in there. But more importantly... It's your strategy, your long-term view, your risk tolerance, and again, where it sits in your portfolio overall. Definitely. And if you have any negatively geared properties in your property portfolio as a viewer or a listener, and if you want to share your story with us, you know, whether it be through an email or drop into the comments or reach us on our Facebook page, on our own personal profile, that would be great. You know, share your story with us, reach out to us. It would be great to understand as to how did you navigate higher interest rate environments with you know super negatively geared properties and what did you do differently with your property portfolios yeah absolutely thank you for listening to us take care stay safe keep smiling keep investing this is Cheryl and Moss checking out Adios. take care ciao ciao bye bye